Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 26th. I'm your reader, Dagna. Today's mini editorial is written by Randy Bradley of Sioux City, and Randy writes, They are not school vouchers, they are education stamps. Parents receive supplemental assistance to purchase education for their children in the private sector. Again, this was written by Randy Bradley of Sioux City. Now, a five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. Today is has a predicted high of 25 with a low of 21. On Friday, it's not going to be quite as cold. It'll be breezy in the morning with a high of 36 and a low of 14. Saturday will be cooler with periods of snow with a high of 17 and a low of minus 4. Sunday will be cold uh, with a snow shower with a high of 3 and a low of minus 5. And Monday will also be cold, uh, snow at night with a high of 2 and a low of minus 10. The top story on the front page today is Sale to Preserve Beauty of Girl Scouts Camp Joy Hollow in Plymouth County. Westfield, Iowa. A fresh layer of deep snow last week sharpened the beauty of the hills and valleys of Camp Joy Hollow, a pocket of land tucked in the Les Hills that's hosted Girl Scout camps for decades. The future of this 356-acre tract in western Plymouth County is also coming into sharper focus. After years of eyeing the piece of land, the Nature Conservancy in Iowa bought the property from the Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa, closing the $1.4 million purchase on December 2nd. The purchase fills in a gap of unique Les Hills habitat, ensuring it will not be split up or developed, and expanding the conservation footprint in western Iowa's Les Hills. In terms of larger conservation landscape, it was a no-brainer, said Graham McGaffin, the Nature Conservancy's state director. It's been a real critical puzzle piece in the northern Les Hills landscape. It's a win-win for everyone. Thanks to a no-cost lease of the facilities, Girl Scouts can continue to rent the cabins for camping. For nature lovers who have never had a chance to walk Joy Hill Camp Joy Hollows Hills and Ravines, the Nature Conservancy plans to open it to the public for hiking, bird watching, photography, snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, and other outdoor activities. Hunting will not be allowed. The big winners are the deer, turkeys, bobcats, and other animals, plus dozens of bird species that call this part of Iowa home. Camp Joy Hollow abuts the Nature Conservancy's 3,300-acre Broken Kettle Grasslands Preserve to the west and Plymouth County's Five Ridge Prairie to the south. Add several conservation easements on adjacent private land and there are roughly 7,500 acres of connected conservation land, essential to providing wildlife with a large unbroken range in which to roam with minimal human interference. It's no wonder McGaffin has a hard time containing his enthusiasm when discussing the purchase. For years, he regularly touched base with the Girl Scouts, letting them know the Nature Conservancy would love to have the first crack of buying the site if they ever decided to sell. When he called in 2019, the Des Moines-based Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa had concluded the ongoing challenges of finding someone to mow, clear snow, and perform other maintenance at Camp Joy Hollow was becoming too great. They were willing to listen, but wanted to ensure Girl Scouts could continue to use the camp. 
It's only one in northwest Iowa, and one that has existed since the 1970s and given hundreds if not thousands of Girl Scouts the chance to experience nature close up. We wanted to preserve the legacy and have it remain available to our members, said Antoinette Burnett, Chief Marketing and Communication Officer of the Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa. The Nature Conservancy was able to demonstrate how they were able to be the best stewards of the property, where we are as a nonprofit could not. As, prof as negotiations began, McGaffin and his staff were determined not to let this opportunity pass. When they first said, we're interested in doing this, then there was a feeling in our staff we were going to get this done, he said. I was pretty excited. In April 2021, the Nature Conservancy received a grant from the U.S. Forest Service's Community Forest Program, the first ever project in Iowa to receive such a grant. At that point, McGaffin knew a deal was going to be reached. Other grants came from the Gilcrest Foundation, Missouri River Historical Development, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Reuben and Muriel Savin Foundation, and the Lust Hills Audubon Society, as well as other private gifts. The Nature Conservancy doesn't plan to add any new amenities immediately, instead focusing on improving the land, which contains trees that were probably here when Lewis and Clark passed through nearly 220 years ago. James Baker, Western Iowa land steward, said workers will trim brush and evasive trees that are encroaching on the woodlands. There will be a controlled burns in grassy areas. The clearing will make it easier for remaining trees to grow and for hikers to step off of Joy Hollow's existing three and a half miles of trails and walk through the woods and Joy Creek Ravine. It will give people a chance to go out and explore, Baker said. The Nature Conservancy will have a kickoff event this summer to officially open Camp Joy Hollow to the public. McGaffin said he's already heard from hiking organizations and other groups eager to set foot on the land, and he expects interest to build as spring nears. Standing in an ice-covered parking lot and looking across the hills, McGaffin said he could not wait to see people filling Joy Hollow's trails and taking in its scenic terrain once open this summer. We very much want it to be a community quality of life amenity, he said. If you love hanging out in scenic areas, you won't find much better quality than this. Woodbury County to keep tax levy at same level or lower for ninth straight year. The Woodbury County Board of Supervisors was able to close a massive $6.3 million gap to keep the tax levy the same or lower. Tax rates next fiscal year for both urban and rural will be either the same as this year or lower, pending a few remaining budget items. Board Chair Matthew Ong said he can guarantee this after the board meeting on Tuesday. I can promise the taxpayers that, and it will be the ninth year in a row that the tax rate has not been increased on county-wide residents, and I think that's extraordinary, Ung said. The fiscal year 2023 budget had tax rates of $7.15 for urban and $9.61 for rural per $1,000 of taxable valuation. This was a two-cent decrease for both from the um, fiscal year 22 budget. The gap to keep the same rate as fiscal year 23 was the largest in years, almost triple the gap of the previous year. Historically, $2 million has been the gap that the supervisors needed to fill to keep the property tax level the same. Last year, the board sought to close a $2.6 million gap. 
The board has been working at each meeting throughout the month to make small and large cuts from budgets to bridge the $6.3 million increase. At the end of Tuesday's meeting, the board was able to bridge that gap and exceed it by around $94,200. This could change with the remaining items to be reviewed by the supervisors, such as the medical examiner budget, wage plan employees, and the compensation board recommendation, but Ong feels it will not cause a tax hike. The gap was closed through a variety of budget cuts, appropriations, and the use of other avenues of funding. One of the largest changes that impacted the budget was the use of $2.5 million of the proceeds from the county farm. This is the second year the board has made this move. Other large decreases were $670,500 from the District Health Allocation Reduction and instead of using American Rescue Plan Act funding. and $35,000 reduction for equipment for various departments using gaming funding instead. $411,738 from the Correctional Facilities Sheriff's Budget and $225,000 from lowering the secondary roads minimum tax asking. Many of the smaller reductions were due to a 40-hour accrual reduction. The board has held five meetings so far examining the $84.5 million budget. The budget cannot increase after February 14, but the supervisors can continue to trim the spending plan until the budget is certified in March. The overall task asking was proposed to increase by roughly $7.8 million with improvement requests. Without the improvement request, the tax asking was proposed to increase by $7.3 million. Last year, it was around $6.3 million, Butler said. If nothing was changed, the potential tax rate was $8.07 for urban and $10.69 for rural per $1,000 of taxable valuation. And in a related story, Woodbury County Compensation Board recommends 7% increase for auditor, treasurer, and county attorney, 10% increase for supervisors. Iowa's Back the Blue Bill continues to cause a high-wage increase recommendation for the Woodbury County Sheriff. This year, the bill led to a recommendation of a 22% increase. The rest of the wage increases proposed by the Woodbury County Compensation Board on Tuesday are lower than last year, but still higher than historically recommended increases. The Compensation Board decided to make a recommendation of a 7% increase for Auditor Pat Gill, Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, a 10% increase for the Board of Supervisors, and a 22% increase for Sheriff Chad Sheehan. County Compensation Boards annually recommend salaries for each county elected official. The members are appointed by the elected officials who are barred by state law from setting their own salaries. The Compensation Board's hands are tied when it comes to the Sheriff's Compensation Recommendation due to Back the Blue, a bill signed by Governor Kim Reynolds last year. The bill requires Compensation Boards to set Sheriff's salaries based on Police Chief salaries in cities with comparable populations. When they did that, they pretty much took away our discretion when it comes to the Sheriff recommendation, said Doug Phillips, who represents the Sheriff on the Compensation Board. Last year, the Compensation Board recommended a 31.35% increase to the Sheriff's salary, matching the salary of Sioux City Police Chief Rex Muller. The supervisors slashed that to 17.35%. Due to that change, the Sheriff would now need to receive a 22% raise to match Muller, Phillips said. 
Last year, the Compensation Board recommended higher-than-normal wage increases for the rest of the elected officials due to a variety of reasons, including inflation, historically low wages, and wages of elected officials in comparably sized counties. The Board recommended a 9% increase for the Auditor and Treasurer, and they received a 4.99% increase, a 13% increase for the Attorney, who received a 7.21% increase, and a 22% increase for the Supervisors, who took a 0% increase. Current elected official salaries are $150,467 for the county attorney, $130,961 for the sheriff, $101,261 for the auditor, $101,260 for the treasurer, $44,100.20 for the supervisor's chairperson, and $37,040.70 for the other supervisors. In 2021, the Compensation Board recommended a 2.75% increase across the board for all elected officials. The Comp Award recommendation was also 2.75 in 2020 and 2018, with a more complicated percentage proposal for the nine officials in 2019. The Compensation Board looked at how the county ranks in size for the state and then how the elected officials rank for pay in the state. Woodbury County ranks 6th in the state for its population. The county attorney is ranked 10th in pay, the auditor and treasurer are ranked 5th in pay, the sheriff is ranked 10th in pay, and the supervisors are ranked 47th in pay. The auditor, attorney, and treasurer increases a 7% is attended to match inflation. The Board of Supervisors has taken a 0% raise for the past few years and has taken a lower raise than other county employees every year for the past 8 years. To keep with comparable rankings and jump to 6th in pay, the supervisors would need to take a 38% increase. The Compensation Board decided to proceed with a 10% increase to make it more approachable for the supervisors. As they were in agreement, the supervisors would deny a 38% increase, the initial recommendation. One of the supervisors' representatives, Dan Lind, said if the board continues to take 0% increase, the suggested raise to keep with comparable boards will continue to get larger and larger. The recommendation will go in front of the Board of Supervisors in the coming weeks. The Board then has the option to approve the increases as is, increase them or decrease the recommendation by the same percentage for all elected officials. These increases also impact the Department's deputies, who get a percentage of the increase. Last year, the Compensation Board recommendation caused lengthy discussions during the Board of Supervisors meetings. The Board decided to take a 0% raise in a 3-2 to two vote. Supervisors Matthew Ung and Rocky DeWitt voted against the decrease, citing inflation and historically low supervisor raises. Ung on Tuesday said he looks at wages through data, such as the market, economy, comparable counties, and ranking in the state. He said the discussion should be objective based on the numbers, not based on personal positions. Supervisors claim Iowa Code allows the board to separate the supervisor's pay from the other elected officials 30 days before approving the compensation board's recommendation. If the board does not separate from the others, all elected officials would be reduced by the same percentage as the supervisor pay. On January 10th, the board attempted to separate their salary increase and take a 0% increase before the compensation board met. The vote to separate failed 2-2. The budget will be certified on March 28th, giving the board until February 28th to make the separation. And now some news from the Iowa Legislator. Iowa Legislator's advanced bill to keep state small rural hospitals from closing. 
Iowa House lawmakers advanced legislation supporters say could provide a financial lifeline to Iowa's small rural hospitals that face closure. The Health and Human Services Committee voted unanimously Tuesday to advance a bill to the House floor that would set up a state licensing process for rural emergency hospitals. New federal rules allow rural hospitals discontinue inpatient care and instead focus on providing outpatient service and emergency medical care through a standalone ER. Once a critical patient is stabilized, they would be transferred to inpatient care elsewhere, while patients with less acute emergencies would be quickly treated and discharged. The bill also increases the government's reimbursement rates for Medicare and Medicaid patients treated at a rural emergency hospital. Anything that we can do to help rural hospitals keep their doors open, and I think this will help reestablish a facility in Keokuk, as well as propping up other small rural hospitals that are in danger of closing their doors. Committee member Tom, Representative Thomas J. Moore, Republican from Griswold, said. Congress established the new Medicare provider designation in 2021 as a means to preserve access to emergency medical care and other services in areas that otherwise would be without a hospital. Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley helped push the passage of the bill. And along with Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Marinette Miller-Meeks, pushed the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to move quickly in finding releasing final rules in the wake of a hospital closure in southeast Iowa. Quincy, Illinois-based Blessing Health closed its 49-bed Keokuk Hospital last fall due to operating losses and low demand for inpatient care. The closure of the Keokuk Hospital is just one of many hospital closures occurring in rural America and is not the last, Keokuk Mayor Kathy Mahoney said in a statement in October of community leaders exploring options to maintain high-quality health care services in the community, including as a rural emergency hospital. Cutting the new now, creating the new licensing designation provides rural hospitals the option to right-size their health and care infrastructure while maintaining essential medical services for their communities, Grassley said in a statement at the time. Enacting the program, though, requires lawmakers in each state to establish state-level requirements and licensing regulations for the new provider type. The bill applies to a general hospital operating under a valid certificate of need with no more than 50 licensed beds in a rural area with a population between 30,000 and 35,000 people, according to the 2020 census figures. This is a great opportunity to support rural communities and keep rural hospitals open, HHA's committee member, Representative Heather Matson, Democrat from Ankeny, said. Committee members also voted unanimously to advance legislation expanding the scope of a loan forgiveness program for mental health providers. Lawmakers last year allocated $1.5 million to the Iowa College Student Aid Commission to pay for a student loan repayment program for mental health care practitioners. The program was established to increase the number of non-prescribing mental health practitioners serving cities within federal mental health shortage areas in the state by providing loan repayment recipients for up to five consecutive years of full-time service, unless granted a waiver for part-time service. The bill advanced Tuesday expands the scope of all eligible licensed mental health professionals who work in the state during a five-year period of full-time practice. The Student Aid Commission would give priority to eligible students who are residents of Iowa upon enrolling in a university and who agree to practice in a service commitment area located in a mental health professional shortage area. The bill also requires recipients to be enrolled as an actively participating Medicaid provider. This brings into Iowa a number of other mental health professionals that we need, said Representative Mary Madison, De Des Moines, 
a West Des Moines Democrat, and it gives Medicaid patients care. EPA fines Sibley Auto Repair Shop $30,000. A Sibley Auto Repair Shop must pay a $30,000 civil penalty for tampering with car engines to avoid emission controls. Turbocharged performance sold or installed at least 581 DFEAT devices in violation of the Federal Clean Air Act, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency said in a news release. The shop will be prohibited from selling defeat and devices, which render emission controls inoperative in the future, and must destroy any remaining devices it possesses. Tampering with car engines, including installing defeat devices intended to bypass manufacturer emission controls, results in the release of higher levels of nitrogen oxides and particulate material, all of which can contribute to health problems, including aggravation of respiratory and cardiovascular disease, asthma, and chronic bronchitis. Teacher accused of having sexual relationship with student. Winside, Nebraska. A Winside teacher has been arrested on suspicion of having a sexual relationship with a student. In a post on his Facebook page, the Wayne County Sheriff's Office said it received information about an alleged relationship between a Winside public schools teacher and a student and began an investigation. On Sunday, Authorities arrested Callie Hikes, 25, of Winside, and booked her into the Antelope County Jail in Neely. Hikes has posted bond and was released. The investigation is ongoing, according to the Sheriff's Office. Charges have yet to be filed with the Wayne um, County Clerk of Courts. Winside School Superintendent Andrew Offner said in an email Wednesday, Hikes has resigned and the school board will take action on the resignation at its next meeting. Hikes was a high school and junior high family and consumer science teacher. Offner said state law limited him on how much information he could share concerning a personnel matter. He said Hikes was placed on administrative leave before she resigned. The school district is unaware of the exact nature of the criminal charges, Offner said, referring anyone with relevant information about the situation to contact law enforcement. Hikes is the second Windside teacher accused of inappropriate contact with a student in the past year. Rachel McPhillips, 28, a former art teacher, was charged in April with third-degree sexual assault and child abuse, both misdemeanors, for having sexual contact with a 16-year-old male student. She has pleaded not guilty. No trial date has been set. Man pleads not guilty of attempted murder. A man charged in connection with the stabbing in Sioux City has pleaded not guilty of attempted murder and other charges. Francisco Tapia, 25, of Remsen, Iowa, entered his written plea Tuesday in Woodbury County District Court to willful injury and second offense possession of a controlled substance in addition to attempted murder. He is charged in the January 14th stabbing of another man in the 2700 block of Floyd Boulevard. According to court documents, Tapia shoved the victim to the ground and punched him in the head inside a laundry. After the victim got up and was walking away, Tapia followed him and stabbed him three times in the back, arm, and leg. The victim was taken to the hospital for treatment for potentially life-threatening injuries. Officers viewing a surveillance video of the incident identified Tapia as a suspect and found him three hours later inside a garage in the 1500 block of 23rd Street, sleeping in a vehicle that did not belong to him, armed with a knife and in possession of psychedelic mushrooms. During an interview with police, Tapia admitted to the stabbing, court documents said. And now a story from South Dakota. South Dakota Tribe. Storm deaths could have been prevented. Honor Beauvoir 
Every every breath was a battle as a snowstorm battled the Rosebud Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. The asthmatic 12-year-olds, worried aunt and uncle, begged for help clearing a path to their cattle ranch near the community of Two Strike as his condition worsened, his fragile lungs fighting a massive infection. But when an ambulance finally, finally managed to get through, Honor's uncle already was performing CPR, said his grandmother, Rose Cordier Beauvais. Honor, whose Lakota name is Yunahan Enhable, was pronounced dead last month at the Indian Health Services Hospital on the reservation, one of six deaths that tribal leaders said could have been prevented if not for a series of systemic failures. Targets of the frustration include Republican Governor Kristi Noem, the U.S. Congress, the Indian Health Service, and even, for some, the tribe itself. We were all just in shock, said Cordier Bouvet, who recalled that when the snow finally cleared enough to hold the funeral, the family gave out toys to other children as a symbol of how he played with his siblings. He loved giving them toys. As the storm raged, families ran out of fuel and two people froze to death, including one in their home, the Rosebud Sioux tribe said in a letter this month seeking a presidential disaster declaration. The letter described the situation on the reservation in a remote area on the state's far southern border with Nebraska, 130 miles southeast of Rapid City, as a catastrophe. And in a scathing State of the Tribes address delivered January 12th in the state legislature, Peter Lenkeek, chairman of the Crow Creek Sioux Tribe, accused emergency services of being slow to react as tribes struggled to clear the snow, with many using what he described as outdated equipment and dilapidated resources. Noam's spokesman, Ian Fury, said the claims were part of a false narrative and could not be further from the truth. The Indian Health Services did not immediately return email messages seeking comment. Noam, who is seen as a potential contender for the 2024 White House, declared an emergency on December 22nd to respond to the winter storm and activated the state's National Guard to haul firewood to the tribe. But by then, the Rosebud Sioux tribe was worn off from a series of storms starting about 10 days before that, were so severe that its leaders ultimately rented two helicopters to drop food to remote locations and rescue the stranded. It all started on December 12th when the tribe shut down offices so people could prepare for the first onslaught. The storm hit in earnest around midnight, dumping an average of nearly two feet of snow on the reservation, most of it in the first day, said Alex Lammers, a National Weather Service meteorologist. By the time the storm let up on December 16, the reservation also was coated with one quarter of an inch of ice and wind gusts as high as 55 miles per hour had blown the snow into drifts of up to 25 feet. Starting on December 18, soon after the blizzard moved out, there were 11 straight days with sub-zero temperatures. Wind chills were dangerous, hitting minus 51 degrees Fahrenheit at their lowest. Then a phenomenon called a ground blizzard hit the reservation on December 22nd. Strong winds blew existing snow on the ground, and visibility fell to a quarter of a mile, Lemurs said. The Bureau of Indian Affairs sent staff to help, and the White House sent said FEMA also spoke to the tribe's president, but snowplows were, par- snow were paralyzed in the cold, with the freezing temperatures turning the diesel fuel and hydraulics into gel, the tribe said.
The tribe also alleges Congress is at fault for not changing rules that allocate how money from a tribal transportation program is distributed among the nation's 574 federally recognized tribes. O.J. Siemens, a consultant for the tribe, said the program's reliance on making determinations based on tribal enrollment hurts the Rosebud Sioux because while its enrollment of 33,210 members is relatively modest, its land base of nearly 890,000 acres spreads across five counties is massive. That meant there simply was not enough equipment to respond, said Siemens, who lost two family members in the storm. One of them, his 54-year-old cousin, Anthony Dubray, froze to death outside, his body found after Christmas. The other victim, his brother-in-law, Douglas James Dillon Sr., called for help during the first storm because his asthma was flaring up, but getting to the hospital would have meant being carried more than a quarter of a mile over snowbanks to a deputy's patrol car. Siemens said a glimpse outside showed it to be almost impossible, so Dillon went to bed. He died December 17th at the age of 59. Siemens and his wife Barbara were snowed in for 15 days, using a propane space heater to ward off the cold after losing power. They were dug out just in time to make it to Dylan's funeral 11 days after his death. Even angry doesn't reach the level of, of the moment, Siemens said. This was an atrocity. And now back to the legislative news. Uh, tenor, tenure ban shelved again, but more reviews may be proposed. A legislative proposal to prohibit Iowa's public universities from offering tenure, tenure to faculty once again will be shelved, but not before one Republican state lawmaker warned a region's official about what he described Tuesday as conservative students feeling unwelcome on campuses. And another Republican state lawmaker, who has proposed banning tenure in the past, said he will not introduce another such proposal this year, but will introduce a bill that takes a different approach in addressing his concerns with tenure. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, had introduced legislation that would ban tenure and held a com subcommittee hearing on it Wednesday at the Iowa Capitol. After hearing from multiple speakers who were all against the proposal, including a lobbyist who represents the state board that governs Iowa's three public universities and works at the University of Iowa, Holt announced his intention to stop the bill from advancing. However, Holt also gave a stern warning. He urged the region's lobbyists to take back to the universities. I'm tired of playing whack-a-mole with these issues going on at universities, he said. I hope you take the message back. We are watching them. After the meeting, Holt detailed what he said were complaints from conservative students at the UI, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa. I have been contacted by a lot of students in my district, some outside my district, regarding, for lack of better term, just some of the irrational, woke stuff that's going on on college campuses. The feeling that they're denied free speech if you're conservative, Holt said. A university is a place where you're supposed to be exposed to a universe of ideas. So I don't care whether it's liberal or conservative. Those thoughts should be welcomed in a university. Holt also told lobbyists for the universities and business groups that he is not deaf and stupid to the concerns they raised with any proposal to ban tenure. He declined to move House File 48 forward. Keith Saunders, who lobbies the legislators on behalf of the regents, said eliminating tenure would make Iowa universities incapable of competing for the best professors, which would hinder attempts to educate young Iowans and threaten research funding. It is a literal competition for us to keep the best and brightest, Saunders said, adding that Iowa would become the only state in the nation without tenure if it was banned. Without tenure, we're not able to attract those faculty. Iowa would be unilaterally disarmed. 
If tenure is not able to be offered in Iowa, we would become an educational backwater. Roughly 42% of Regents University faculty faculty are tenured, and another 12% are on the track to tenure, a Regents official said during the hearing. The official said roughly six or seven tenured faculty are dismissed over a 10-year period. In the Senate, Brad Zahn, a Republican, has introduced tenure bans in the past. He said this year he will not introduce another such proposal. Instead, he plans to introduce legislation that would require universities to conduct more frequent reviews of tenured faculty. Currently, tenure reviews are conducted every six or seven years a Regents official said. Zahn said his bill could reduce that period to every two to three years. I've learned a lot of lessons over the years, and what I've learned in talking to the professors that are in our Regents universities is that I was going about it the wrong way, Zahn said. If I do file a bill, the bill's going to be pretty simple, that the 10-year reviews are done on a more regular basis. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 26, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to today's obituaries. First one is Dolores J. D. Sachau, and that's spelled S-A-C-H-A-U, 93, died Tuesday, January 24th at a local nursing home. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10 a.m. on Saturday at Holy Cross Parish St. Michael Catholic Church with burial to follow in Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday at St. Michael Church with a parish vigil at 7 p.m. The family is being assisted with arrangements by Christie Smith Funeral Home, Larkin Chapel. Dolores Jean D. Shearer, the daughter of Oliver and Lucille McCormick Shearer, was born May 10, 1929 in Jackson, Minnesota. She graduated from Central High School in Sioux City. On December 22, 1951, D. was united in marriage with Harry H. Sashaw in Elk Point, South Dakota. Harry died March 3, 2000. She was devoted to her family and created a warm and caring home for her ever-growing family. She loved and supported every one of her children, grandchildren, and many friends. Dee created many holiday and birthday traditions over the years. Her favorite was the annual Christmas Eve celebration at her home. Each year was filled with children, laughter, chaos, the all-important nativity scene, wonderful food, and of course, a visit from Santa. Dee touched countless lives during her 93 years. She was wise, kind, generous, creative, fun, and the constant source of strength for her family and so many others. She volunteered with many organizations, including Girl Scouts, Diocese of Sioux City Catholic Schools, the Bargain Center, Goodfellows Charities, and Siouxland Center for Active Generations. Dee was a member of the St. Michael Catholic Church, Siouxland Center for Active Generations, Catholic Daughters, and the Red Hat Society. She enjoyed dancing, playing Shanghai, bridge, and bingo. The family has requested that memorials be directed to Sunrise Community Retirement Community and St. Croix Hospice. Stacia Eileen Dahlman, South Sioux City, 81, died Saturday, January 21st. Services will be January 26 at 10.30 a.m. at St. Michael's Catholic Church, South Sioux City. Burial will be at St. Michael's Cemetery. Visitation was held on January 25th from 6 to 8 p.m at Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home, South Sioux City. Clint Lineberry, Akron, Iowa, formerly of Westfield, Iowa, 79, died Tuesday, January 24th. Services will be January 30th at 11 a.m. at the Rex Winkle Funeral Home in Akron. Visitation will be January 29th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home and resumes January 30th 
from 10 a.m. until service time. Gordon A. Grieve, Sioux City, 80 years old, died Monday, January 23rd. Services will be January 28th at 11 a.m. at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Burial will be private at the Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be January 27th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the church. Arrangements with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. And that concludes the obituaries for today. We'll now move to um, another uh, news story. Former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad appointed president of World Food Prize Foundation. Former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad will take over as president of the World Food Prize Foundation, considered the preeminent award for global agriculture. Branstad, the longest-serving governor in Iowa's history and former ambassador to China, said he's hoping to raise the visibility of the organization and continue to fund research into the quantity and quality of agriculture. The organization gives an annual $250,000 award to an individual for their achievements in improving the quality, quantity, and availability of food in the world, according to a press release. Cynthia Rosenwig, American agronomist, received the award in 2022. I am very honored and very pleased to be asked to be the new president of the World Food Prize, Branstad said in an interview. It has been a wonderful thing for our state. We've also helped get young people involved in STEM education and go all over the world. Branstad will succeed Barbara Stinson in the role, who has been president since 2020. Kenneth Quinn, who led the organization from 2000 to 2020, will serve as a temporary special consultant during the transition period, according to the release. We are excited to bring on a leader with both global vision and strong roots in agriculture, Paul Schickler, chair of the foundation, said in a release. Ambassador Branstad, who was serving as governor of Iowa when John Ruin Sr. rescued the World Food Prize and moved it to Iowa, has been a champion of our mission from its earliest days. The annual award was created by Nobel Prize laureate Norman Borlaug to award innovations in agriculture. The sponsorship of the program was taken over by Iowa businessman John Ruin in 1990 while Branstad was governor. Branstad said he hopes to build on the initiatives that foundation is already running, including the annual prize, a research program through Iowa State University, and the Iowa Hunger Summit. Branstad was Iowa's governor from 1983 to 1999, and then again from 2011 to 2017. In 2017, he was tapped by President Donald Trump to be ambassador to China. Branstad's relationships with food companies during his time as Iowa's governor will help in getting contributions to the foundation, he said, and his political experience will help keep up annual state appropriations to the foundation. We've always had broad bipartisan support for the World Food Prize, he said. We hope that we can get the state appropriation and also that I can raise private money to help augment that. We now move to the opinion page, and we have an uh, opinion piece written by Glenn Sievenbergen, who is the CEO of Whispering Heights Nursing Facility in Rock Valley, Iowa, and Dale Kuma is the chair of the Whispering Heights Board of Directors. And they write, um, the headline is, Long-Term Care Access at Risk in Rural Iowa. Nursing homes, including Whispering Heights in Rock Valley, Iowa, are under tremendous financial pressure due to a number of factors that have occurred during the nearly three years of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
For instance, at Whispering Heights, our total expenses have increased over 41.2% during the past three years, while the state Medicaid reimbursement rate has remained the same during that time. This growth in expenses is a direct result of significantly higher wage costs to recruit and retain employees, overtime and premium pay for those individuals willing to work extra shifts, and wages for the use of temporary staffing to fill open positions to provide the care needed. Additionally, inflation has driven significant cost increases in supplies and consumables of every kind. I am asking the Iowa Legislature to increase Medicaid to a level that covers the cost of taking our care of our frail elderly community members that are on Medicaid so that we can continue to provide this vital service to our community. I feel the following points support our case to increase funding. All but two of the 2022 closures were in rural county, Iowa counties. Whispering Heights serves a rural com community of Sioux County, a population of 35,000, making this a serious concern to our community. An Iowa Health Care Association survey shows that 72% of providers have limited or stopped taking admissions. At Whispering Heights, we have limited bed availability and admissions by 17%. On average, it costs $93,133 a year to provide care for a single Medicaid nursing facility resident in Iowa. And in 2022, providers were reimbursed $78,000 $4 on average for costs, equating to a 20% funding shortfall. At Whispering Heights, it costs an average of $111,143 a year to provide care for a single Medicaid nursing facility resident, and we are reimbursed $82,282 per year, equating to a $35,000 funding shortfall. Wages in North I West Iowa are significantly higher than other areas of the state. In order to operate sustainable services and avoid more facility closures and or bed reductions, the need to take action on providing adequate Medicare, Medicaid funding is now. And again, this was written by uh, the CEO of Whispering Heights Nursing Facility in Rock Valley and the uh, chairman of the board of directors. We'll now move to a sports story. Morningside men's basketball team up to 18th in NAIA coaches poll, Dort women's team now at 4th. The Morningside men's basketball team climbed two spots to number 18 in the latest National Association of Intercollegiate Athletes, or the NAIA, coaches poll released Wednesday. The Mustangs, ranked 20 in the previous poll released on January 11th, moved up following wins over Hastings, Doan, Concordia, and Mount Marty. Morningside, which stands at 16-3 overall, solidified its first place standing in the Great Athletic Conference. Uh, the Mustangs are 10-2 in the conference, a game ahead of Jamestown, the only GPAC team ranked ahead of the Morningside. In the new poll, the Jimmies are number 11. Dort and Northwestern, tied for third place in the GPAC with 8-4 records, are receiving votes. College of Idaho holds the top spot in the NAIA poll. Morningside was set to host Northwestern Wednesday night. The latest NAIA women's basketball coaches poll has Dort at number four, down one spot from the previous poll. The defenders are one of three teams from the GPAC in the top 25. The Briar Cliff are ranked number 18 and Northwestern is number 20. Defending national champion Thomas Moore, Kentucky, which received all 21 first place votes, has been ranked first all season. Thomas Moore and Central Methodist are the lone unbeaten teams left. 
Dort 19 wins is tied for the second most in the NAIA. The defenders, who have lost only to Doan, are 13-1 in the G-Pack, two games behind second place Briar Cliff, which has a 11-3 league record. Jamestown is third at 10-4, a half a game ahead of Northwestern at 9-4. In a key conference games Wednesday night, Dort traveled to Dakota Wesleyan while Briar Cliff was at Midland and Northwestern visited Morningside. We'll now move to high school, high school basketball, starting with boys basketball. Junior Lamars, junior forward Andrew Fifta's 18 points led three Lamars boys in double figures as the Bulldogs upset number five Bishop Helam 62-49 Tuesday night. Junior forward Drew Gales added 12 points, and junior guard Tegan Castle had 10 for the Bulldogs, who snapped an eight-game losing streak and won for only the third time this season. After taking a narrow 22-21 lead at halftime, the Bulldogs went on a 19-10 run to stretch their advantage to 41-31 at the end of the third end of the quarter. At the end of the third quarter. Okay, that was written kind of funny. Junior center Matt Knoll was the only Crusader in double-figure scoring with 16 points. The Crusaders ranked sixth in the Iowa High School Athletic Association Class 3A poll released Monday, fell to 11-4 overall and 5-4 in the Missouri River Conference. Lamar's improved to 3-10 overall and 3-7 in the conference. Now other scores for the uh, high school boys. Sioux City East 66, Sioux City West 51. Sergeant Bluff Luton 62, Sioux City North 59, Remsen St. Mary 79, Harris Lake Park 31, Hinton 50, Akron Westfield 48, Hardington Cedar Catholic 63, Ponca 30, West Sioux 68, Lamars Galen Catholic 53, Wakefield 64, Lutheran Northeast 57, Unity Christian 69, South O'Brien 57, Laurel Concord Coleridge 54, Osmond Randolph 25, Winnebago 76, Bancroft Rosalie 59, Central Lions 78, Boyden Hall 57, MLC Floyd Valley 75, West Lyon 68, Hartley Melvin Sanborn 63, MMCRU 51, Rock Valley 42, George Little Rock 33, Sioux Center 81, Sheldon 47, OABCIG 59, IKM Manning 47, Storm Lake 79, Cherokee 69, Sioux Central 77, Alta Aurelia 57, Newell Fonda 75, Emmitsburg 44, East Sac County 51, Manson Northwest Webster 46. Well, now we move to um, girls basketball. Uh, Remsen, Iowa. Junior Whitney Jensen scored 21 points and handed out four assists as the Remsen St. Mary's girls rolled to a 70-27 victory over Harris Lake Park Tuesday night, tie, staying in a tie for second place in the War Eagle Conference. Junior Maya Bunkers added 18 points and junior Claire Schroeder had 14 for the Hawks, ranked number four in the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union's most recent Class 1A poll. Peyton Raymer's 11 points led the Wolves, who fell to 3-10 overall and 2-3 in the War Eagle. St. Mary's, which won its seventh straight game, moved to 15-1 overall and 5-1 in the conference, tied with West Sud for second place. Both teams are 11, one and a half games back of 7-0 Unity Christian, the number two ranked team in Class 2A. Okay, and so now in other um, area games. Bishop Helan 60, Lamar's 50. 
Sergeant Bluff Luton, 45, Sioux City North, 32. Lamars, Galen Catholic, 55, West Sioux, 53. Hinton, 60, Akron, Westfield, 22. Ponca, 45, Hardington Cedar Catholic, 40. Unity Christian, 63, South O'Brien, 12. Central Lion, 87, Boyden Hall, 37. MMCRU, 63, Hartley Melvin Sanborn, 41. Sioux Center, 63, Sheldon, 22. Wakefield, 64, Lutheran Northeast, 44. West Lyon, 69, MOC Floyd Valley, 50. Newell Fonda, 67, Emmitsburg, 26. Cherokee, 67, Storm Lake, 49. Sioux Central, 76, Alta Aurelia, 35. Mason Northwest Webster, 55, East Sac County, 44. Now we're going to move to some entertainment news. There's um, things to do in Siouxland this weekend. First is um, Elvis. Don't be surprised if you see Elvis Presley hanging around Hard Rock Hotel and Casino's Anthem at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday. We wouldn't be surprised if you see Elvis in triplicate. Three of the best Elvis tribute performers will be in One Night with the King, which captured the legendary singer at different stages of his career. A second thing you can do is, well, uh, is Sun Records' other favorite son. While Elvis may have been the biggest name to record at Memphis's famed Sun's Records, label mate Johnny Cash probably came in a close second. The Big Bad Cash Band will be playing cover versions at 8 p.m. Saturday at Vanguard Arts at 416 Pierce Street. And a third thing that you could do is uh, a hairspray. Ozone layer, snow zone layer. Sometimes you just need a little extra aquanet. The Broadway musical Hairspray is coming to the Orpheum Theater at 528 Pier Street at 7.30 p.m. Wednesday. Can a girl with a big dream and bigger hair change the world? Well, you can't stop the beat for this stage adaptation of John Waters' cult classic. Another thing you can do uh, is called swing time. We're not worthy. Well, actually, you probably aren't. Still, there is Wayne's World Trivia Contest at 7 p.m. Wednesday. Will, you, will it make you hurl? We hope not. And then um, the uh, a fifth thing you can do is Sioux City-based singer-songwriter Jill Miller will be performing a special Songs from the Heart concert at 2 p.m. Sunday at the Betty Strong Encounter Center at 900 Larson Park Road. And then uh, a play you can go to. Is it a play about pirates or is it about an alien ship that beams a bunch of kids into outer space? Actually, Space Pirates, a Lamb Arts Regional Theater production youth offering, is a bit of both. Performances will start on Saturday and end on February 5th at the Lamb Theater at 417 Market Street. We'll now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, I have a moral and ethical dilemma. I nominated a co-worker for a benefit through our company. The person was awarded what I considered to be a good sum, $5,000, for replacement hearing aids. Seven months have gone by and this person still has a check and hasn't used the money for its intended purpose. They bought two beater cars and took a trip to New York City. I feel like I was duped. Should I call the hotline and let the foundation know my suspicions or let it go? I feel that this person got away with what I feel are dirty deeds. What to do? Regret regretting it in the West. And Abby's response. What to do is contact the foundation that sent the generous check, explain your concerns, and leave the ball in their court. They may indeed wish to follow up and possibly inform the police if there was fraud involved. 
Dear Abby, I am stuck in a rut here. My girlfriend is anxious and depressed. I love her very much and I want to help her. I understand that someone with anxiety and depression can be a handful, but sometimes I feel like I'm dealing with too much. My girlfriend is so deep in this state that no matter how I try, it seems like she doesn't want my help at all. How do I deal with this? I feel like I am going mad. Signed, Need Guidance in the East. And Abby's response. I am sure you love your girlfriend very much, but it is important to realize that depression and anxiety are medical conditions. You cannot fix them. The most helpful thing you can do for your girlfriend would be to convince her to discuss what's going on with her doctor so she can be referred to a licensed mental health provider. Medications are available that can help her as well as talk therapy, which she may also need. Dear Abby, I have been a dental assistant for more than 20 years, and I'd like to share an observation with your readers. Over the years, we have seen many patients who diligently take care of their oral hygiene. Then, suddenly, we notice decay both clinically and on x-rays after years of no decay. We ask them, are you taking a new medication that's causing dry mouth? Have you started drinking some different beverage? Have you been eating more sweets? More often than not, they tell us nothing's changed. The problem often is sugar where they don't expect it. In fiber supplements, meal replacement shakes, gummy vitamins, chewable antacid, vitamin and water, etc. Many of these items contain a surprising amount of sugar. Please encourage your readers to read the nutrition labels of their supplements. It could save their teeth. Signed, Anti-Decay in Dallas. And Abby responds, Thank you very much for educating my readers and me. This is something I have never considered, and I'll bet many of them haven't either. Your letter is an important one, and I hope they will heed it as I plan to. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 26th. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you so much for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors.
A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK, when men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.